Um, today, we are going to study what the formula of Concord said about good works. And it was a necessary discussion, and it is one I think that um, all Christians should contemplate. Uh, Pastor Grady last week talked about law and gospel. That should probably be a good prelude to this discussion about good works. But I'm going to um, ask you at your tables to answer these two questions, and then uh, we'll launch into our study of the handout that has been given to you. Let's start with a prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that we as Christians may do those things which are pleasing in your sight, that our life would be filled with good works. We ask also that we might understand ever more fully how it is that good works are done, will be done, and why they are done for your greater glory. But lead us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, that they may always be done out of gratitude and out of love for you and the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, doke. Go to it. Michael, you're the only one at that table, and I would suggest that that this would be a time for your bipolar nature to start talking to. You can talk to yourself. Um, he might, Michael might need somebody to help him out down here. And um, uh, if you any, oh, you're going to move over. I see. You can. I mean, I'm sure somebody would be happy to have you. Okay. You guys have already got the answer, right? What is a good work? Question number two. If good works don't gain a heavenly reward, why do we care about doing them? Why do we care? Well, it looks like nobody's talking. There are just a couple of tables that are discussing this. So uh, we will um, ask, what is a good work? Yes. It's something pleasing to God. It pleases God. But how do we know what pleases God? How do we know that it pleases God? A definition of a good work. Helping little old ladies across the street. Good work. How d All right, so you're, um, you're, you're a doctor on the battlefield and you're saving lives. Do we know if that's a good work or not? What is the standard that we use for defining? Yes. Okay. So there's this, this kind of this idea of it being a reflection of God's love for us. So I guess whatever it is that God would do for us, we would do for others, and that would be a good way of defining it. Anybody have the stock catechism answer? Yes. 
Okay, you know, the idea is, is that we turn it outward towards somebody else and for the benefit of somebody else. Okay, anything else? Okay, uh, Pastor Grady will be teaching the confirmation class for all you adults uh, in the catechism. I'm just talking. It's okay, don't worry. I'm not, I'm just kind of joking. Um, the stock catechism uh, answer is something like this. Anything that is done according to the Ten Commandments, right? So you think, what does that mean? Fourth commandment, if I'm going to be doing a good work, honoring my parents is a good work. So if your parents tell you to take out the garbage, Lucy, if your parents tell you to take out the garbage and you joyfully and willingly take it out, because not just because you're being obedient unto your parents and they're going to punish you if you don't, no, because you know that the love of Christ is in you and you do it willingly. This is, this is, why, this is why our youth don't attend my class. I just pick on them all the time in, in class here. Uh, according to the Ten Commandments. So, you know, and, and just think, think about how lowly and how humbly a good work could be. You know, Luther would talk about uh, the maid who, is, who, who listens or puts up with her mistress, the lady who hired her to clean her upstairs in an apartment or whatever, that when she does it, according to the commandments, joyfully, willingly, works hard. When you hear slander and you, you make, Luther said, you make your ears a grave. When, when in the sixth commandment, when you take your wife to dinner and it's a pizza party. But you think about everything that you do to promote your, your marriage. The kindness, the thoughtfulness, the way that you show deference, the way that you protect, the way that you pay for somebody getting their nails done. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't pay for it. Anyway, I, I, you, to, that, to think of the good works in terms of the commandments, therefore, I guarantee you, it takes away all these so-called glorified worldly things, you know, where you have to be feeding the poor in order to be able to be doing a good work. Okay? So, according to the Ten Commandments, but most importantly, the ingredient that goes along with that is faith. That when you put your faith in Christ, he actually accepts your works as good works. Because we're going to be talking about this because every work is always tainted with some element of sin. Yeah. Some element of sin. And so therefore... A little bit like, say, you know, that I always talk about the little pieces of artwork that the kids bring and hand to me after church. You know, they got stickers, 500 stickers that are on a piece of paper. Is this pleasing? Is it good? The answer is, if you probably wanted to take it down to an art gallery and sell it, no. If you're going to say, how is it given? It was given in the spirit of love than it is. So, 
the definition, what is a good work according to Ten Commandments and done in faith? And if good works don't gain a heavenly reward, why do we do them? The answer is, I like to pick on Pauline Kurtz because she's retired now and she has lots of time to think about these things. Cain and Abel? Ah. And the question was, what was the difference? Oh, okay. <laughs> She's forever the teacher. She just turns around and makes you into the pupil again. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, it's, it's, one was offered in faith, and the other, it does, well, didn't have anything to do with the quality of what was being given, but rather that one was being given in faith and the other one wasn't. So, yeah, but we say, why do we care about doing them? Well, um, as Linda Silverberg puts it, our good works not only serve our neighbor, right? But also, yes, they are pleasing to God, but we do them as a response, a natural response. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to actually do this now once we've come to faith. That good works, just like with a plant that is um, planted into the ground and it grows and produces flowers or produces fruit, this is what happens to Christians when they come to know Christ. So, okay. Let's have a look at our handout. It's only one sheet. This is two sides. Okay. This is what it is that the formula of Concord says. For when good works are done on account of right causes and for right ends, that is, with the intention that God demands of the regenerated, they are an indication of salvation in believers. It is God's will and express command that believers should do good works which the Holy Spirit works in them, and God is willing to be pleased with them for Christ's sake, and he promises to reward them gloriously in this and in the future life. This is, um, we, uh, we have a hard time being able to convince to help people, I guess, maybe distinguish that if we say that God rewards good works in this life and in life to come, it sounds as though we are saying by our good works we earn that reward. That's, no. The, the good works are things that come as a response to the gospel and through them great blessings also come. So if you are honoring your parents, amazingly, God will also work it so that your children honor you. If you are a person who obeys the commandments and you do not covet what belongs to somebody else, you will be a person who God will give the gift of being able to enjoy whatever it is that you have. There's a passage of the Old Testament that says, it is a gift from God for a wealthy man to enjoy his riches. It is a gift from God where he can actually make us happy with what we have. Just as much as if we had so much or so little, it didn't matter. God is going to make us happy either way. This is the benefit or the blessing that comes from not coveting what other people have. 
So in the commandments, there is this wonderful blessing in our life. Now, sometimes, we don't always understand why, but sometimes God lays a heavy burden on our shoulders. Sometimes he makes it hard for us to be able to go through life. But even when that happens, the mystery, always the mystery, is that somehow in the midst of it, God gives us some joy and through that suffering, it may be that it actually benefits somebody else. That you're actually bringing joy to somebody else's life. But we know this for sure. That no matter what that cross might be, we don't have to carry it to the end of our lives. That in heaven, can you imagine what heaven could ever possibly be like? Yeah, it's so wonderful. So anyway, let's, let's go on to what, the, what our formula says. There was a, there was a controversy. We all know, and I think really all of these Lutheran theologians knew, that justification by grace through faith took place apart from the law. And we don't, I don't think you have to explain too much what justification by faith means, but it means that when, simply when one grabs on and trusts that Christ has there for us, that God has in Christ reconciled the world to himself, that we are now reconciled to God, that he has forgiven us for all, all of our sins, that when that is grabbed onto, it is not something that is added to or diminished by the things that we do, or by our works. You can be the thief on the cross and never have done a single good work in your whole life. And at that moment where faith grabs onto Christ and his forgiveness, you have everything. God declares you to be innocent. He gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives you everything that the Holy Spirit has to give, including life and salvation. Today you will be with me in paradise. So they all saw that pretty much and saw it clearly. Now, this kind of set them apart. And I, I, I know that not a lot of you have read Martin Luther, but man, the guy is just, he, he had he had a spiritual set of eyes that were just incredible. And he, what he saw and how he responded to it made him stand heads and shoulders even above the early church fathers. Because, as we say here, the fathers never contested the fact that grace was the cause of salvation. In other words, you go to St. Augustine, Augustine, you go to these early church fathers, you know, even in Rome, there was kind of this idea that, hey, look, um, we can't do this on our own. God has to be able to be the one who has to step into our life and he has to help us and it is grace. It's unworthy. We're unworthy of it. But there was always this little element. They saw the good, good, good works as Christians' instruments reaching up and pulling down more divine grace. What that means is that when you go to the, um, to the store, when I was four, three years old, I escaped my mother's house and I went down to the local grocery store. They had, back in those days, they had grocery stores that were in neighborhoods. Uh, anybody who remembers, please nod your head ever so gently. And uh, I still remember the counter. I can still have a picture of it. And 
my sisters, I think, had been playing Monopoly or something like that, and I went down with Monopoly money, and I got there, and I found that great sucker, and I put up the Monopoly money on the counter like this, and the lady looked at me, and she said, I'm sorry, that's not real money. You can't buy that. And this huge disappointment came over me. It was the great lesson of real currency in life. And that's what, there's always kind of this idea that you could just take that monopoly money of your good works and you could just get a little bit more. So what that would mean is, if you didn't have them, you got a little bit less. And that idea eventually grew into the point where actually you would need more and more, and who would help you with that more and more? It would be the church, and the Roman Catholic Church became that instrument through which that would happen. Okay. So, okay. Um, this set Lutheranism apart and defined it over and against all forms of Christianity, all expressions of Christianity. Now, that phrase, expressions of Christianity, means... We always have to deal with the fact that, that in Christianity there's always going to be sometimes what we call the fallacious inconsistency. That is that sometimes people will talk about God's grace and His forgiveness and all that He has done for us and then they'll turn around and they'll say, but we need to do this and this. And you're going, wait a minute. Either He gives it all to me and this is only what I do out of gratitude but Churches will sometimes resort to the law and they will create the impression that you have to do something in addition that you're not quite good enough. How many of you heard the phrase carnal Christians and spiritual Christians? Have you heard that before? Well, obviously, most of you, if you've heard it, have been accused of having been carnal Christians. Because uh, supposedly a carnal Christian is just a person who just kind of believes. A spiritual Christian is a person who really puts that belief into action and does spiritual things and you know, regularly does this. and reg- Yeah, well, if, you are, if there are two categories of Christians in this world, then um, only the good ones get to be able to be the spiritual ones. The Jehovah's Witnesses, we had a guy live across the street from us in Utah who was a Jehovah's Witness. They believe that the 144,000 that you see in the book of Revelation, that these actually are the spiritual ones who really have attained to those really high levels of spirituality and they actually go to heaven. They're the 144,000. They kind of, they're as embodied, almost spirits, embodied spirits. Um, this idea that, like even in Roman Catholicism, that... Uh, you're just an average person with carnal desires so you can get married, but if you want to really, really, really please God, you have to go in to take holy orders. And you have to become a monk or a nun. Now that doesn't prevail as much nowadays because they're not gaining too many people in that, in that area. But it was always the burden that was laid onto people, that there was something more that had to be done. All right, let's see. Did this mean that Lutherans were therefore, number two, opposed to good works? 
Now, you're gonna, you've heard this phrase a lot, antinomianism. Now, that's, we like to use big words like that so that it looks like we're smart. Um, but anti, no, anti is against, nomos means law, that we are against God's law, that it's once you become a Christian, supposedly, then it doesn't matter how it is that you live your life because my, you got Jesus. You know, that's all you need. You just go do whatever you want. And um, this spirit of antinomianism is something that Lutherans have always op uh, opposed. You know, if th most of you don't realize that these, um, these Amish that are so... You got them up north of Fort Wayne, don't you? Lots of them. Are there many down here? Are there any Amish col colonies down here? They, um, they, uh, I've got a, a, a cousin of mine that sells chicken feed to the Hutterites. You ever heard of Hutterites? They're like the Amish. They have over a hundred different communities. Um, but those, these, uh, we call them Anabaptists. They're pacifists today, but they were exactly the opposite of that in Europe. And they believed, basically, that they were going to create this kingdom on earth, but they, it was antinomianism. They could almost do anything that they wanted to do. And there was, have you ever heard of the city of Munster and how it is that Munster got wiped out because there was this huge Anabaptist revolution that took place there? We don't even imagine that. They, they were, um, how would you call it? It's like that, that special that's on TV now with this cult that was out in Oregon where they had this guy who walked around like this all the time and they all kind of worshipped him and then they had free sex and all kinds of other things. That was the Anabaptists. You can well imagine. The Amish just turned them inside out. They just became pacifists because they realized that the Europeans were going to kill them all if they didn't. Are, they, are we antinomians? No. We actually believe in the and stress the importance of good works. But this didn't, in that controversy with Rome, it didn't satisfy the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics had wanted Lutherans to say, you would still have to add something in order to be able to be saved. Yeah. What were the divisions? Some took, came along and said, well, and this is probably Melanchthon or those that were joining with him, they were trying to be able to kind of, in this, remember we talked about this Augsburg interim and the Leipzig interim where they, they tried to kind of force the Lutherans back into being kind of Roman Catholic, but they wouldn't accept that, so they kind of came up with this compromise that was kind of halfway between Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism. And they basically said, well, if the Catholics want us to wear certain types of robes, if they want us to be able to have a, celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass, whatever it is that we can do that doesn't necessarily appear to be sin, we'll do that. And then when it came to this phrase, good works, they would say, well... We could say there's a one way of putting it that we could say good works are necessary to salvation. There's kind of a way to be able to say that, but the minute that they did, now what, what they meant by that was good works will always come along with faith and to the end that we remain in the faith doing good works, good works are necessary for salvation. But everybody knew exactly how that could be turned inside out. 
and they would say, you've got to do good works or you can't go to heaven. Of course, then, you know, whose guess would it be as to what a good work was? So, others uh, took a, a different, little different position. That I, I won't sp spend too much time on it. A guy by the name of Amstorf turned around and said, actually, good works are detrimental to salvation. It sounds like two Germans arguing. <laughs> um, why did he say detrimental? Well, again, detrimental meant they were saying, if you start relying upon your good works in order to go to heaven, then they're detrimental. But the problem is not with the good works. The problem is with your attitude or your spirit. And so... Here they were, they were having to define ever more clearly to make sure that people didn't think good works are necessary to salvation, good works are detrimental to salvation. These were semantics at the start, but eventually, because they were Germans, it grew into a big controversy. Now, how, what did they mean? This I, this I found to be very interesting. I don't know what you, what you guys will, will think of this, but different kinds of good works. Good works in the world can be performed by Christians and non-Christians alike when they contribute to the well-being of society. Now, this is, this is quite a step. If you kind of think about maybe where it is that sometimes other people are coming from, other churches, there is the idea or the appearance that if you're not a Christian, you can't be doing something that God would consider to be a good work. And there's always been kind of this mystery that sometimes people who aren't Christians are nicer than Christians. You haven't noticed that ever before? <laughs> that sometimes people who are atheists and people who are Jewish and people who are even Muslims can do things. We had, we had a, when we were traveling on, on old Bill here, for those of you that don't know who Bill is, he's sitting in the parking lot out there in the pasture spot, uh, driving my van. Well, we were down in Knoxville and we, the people who we were we had to stay at an Airbnb longer because Bill needed some uh, mechanical work on him. And the people that we were staying with, uh, he had been a former missionary in the Philippines. And he was with Lutheran, not Lutheran Bible translators, but Wycliffe Bible translators. And he and his wife. They got over to the Philippines and they were sent out to some remote location out in the Philippines, right smack in the, de in the middle of the rebel territory. They said their lives were saved by their Muslim Islamic neighbors. They protected them and kept them from being killed by these people who were these rebels in this area. We don't sometimes think, in light of all the problems that we've had in the world, that you could have, yeah, but those, those people can be doing good works. That actually God calls good works. But they're good works according to a different standard. These good actions earn God's favor in the world and will be rewarded by God in the temporal world. 
And we are out in, in Utah. Now, Lucy, don't marry a Mormon if I tell you that Mormons do good works. Anybody here planning on marrying a Mormon? No, okay. Well, she was from Utah, and she knows this too. They, those people out in Utah, they want to raise their children. They want to bring children into this world. They care about family. They can be good workers. They can be honest. The FBI is full of them because they go and recruit them out of BYU because they're people who have a respect for authority, and they will work hard. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't understand God as we understand God. They don't understand grace in the way that we understand grace. But they are people who God strangely rewards with an awful lot of peace and happiness in their life. They don't drink. They don't drink coffee, which I think is not a good work. I, personally, I, I think that one goes a little too far. But... As Lutherans, this is why it's important for us because we can go out into the world and even though we differ with people on the Christian faith, we can actually appreciate and love the things that people do when they don't share our common faith. God is pleased with those things and we should be too. All right, well, this is what the formula said. Society's good works, however, do not merit or contribute to the salvation of the one who is performing them. They still, quote, come from the flesh and man's own sinful nature. In other words, you can always attribute to the flesh. Sometimes you want to say, well, okay, the flesh recognizes that this is for the good of society. The flesh recognizes that this is what makes you happy. The flesh recognizes that hey, if I don't do this, maybe my life is going to be worse. You can have all the motivations, but it still comes from the flesh. And we have to recognize that God himself does not regard this as being meritorious or beneficial. All right, next. Lutherans are able to recognize the value of these good works in society without making them, as the Roman Catholics did, do, contributing contributory to salvation. That's a phrase that we sometimes don't understand Roman Catholicism, but Roman Catholicism said, look, if we're, if we're saved by our good works, in a sense, even the unbeliever's good works can go into the money pot that will eventually bring about your salvation. It's just that you won't have enough money. You won't have enough good works. But, so in other words, if, if that Mormon out there is doing good things, he kind of gets a deposit into the account, and those things in the end could actually benefit him. Lutherans are going, what? You've got to be kidding me. But the other side of that, too, is what? We don't disparage them as evil if they are done by a person who's not a Christian. Um, sometimes you ever find yourself wondering whether or not your kids should be playing with people who are from homes that aren't Christian or aren't Lutherans? Sometimes, I think, I think a little bit of this sometimes is behind the... I don't want, I don't want to say that, that home teaching is by any means bad, but I don't think we should ever be afraid of the world. 
we should actually raise our children to have an enormous amount of confidence in the world and we want them to be able to go out into the world and work with people that are not like them and to themselves become salt in the world. Now, um, this doesn't mean that you guys are supposed to date boys who aren't Lutherans. <laughs> We've got that straight, don't we? All right. And I choose who you marry. Your parents can choose who they date. But I choose who you marry, right? She, sell, she says yes up until the point that she gets confirmed. <laughs> and then after that, it's all whatever. Okay. What is the proper view of uh, good works then? Faith never exists without good works. Faith by its inner nature performs good works. The good tree always produces good fruit. I can't tell you how many times, and I, I know this is a tough sell, I do think it's important that we talk about stewardship and we talk about how God has given us gifts and we should be giving back to Him. And we shouldn't be we don't, we don't kind of just see what's left over at the end of the day. Paul, the Bible talks about first fruits giving, that we put our trust in God, that we know that God can bless us, and when he blesses us, he takes that five loaves of bread and he feeds 5,000 people with it. He can, he can take what we have and he can make it go miraculously in a beautiful way to solve all, all our needs. Having food and raiment with that, let's be content. But I, but I always run into people who are saying, you know, Pastor, you really got to use that bully pulpit to start preaching money. And you know what? When you preach the gospel, the gospel produces good works by itself. The fastest way to kill a congregation is to use the laws, the motivation for stewardship. Right? And have you noticed, Advent, that our congregation has done well? Oh, yes, we could always do better. That our congregation has done well out of the generosity of people's hearts. And it's been a blessing from God. And the only way to be able to find those blessings is to preach first and foremost and solely and right in the smack-dab center. You preach about Christ and his love for us and his forgiveness. And wow, when that heart grabs onto that forgiveness, there's never a time in which that, I would say, that donkey can't be asked for. I've always kind of wondered about that, haven't you? I mean, Jesus comes up on that mountain and he's on his way down to Jerusalem and he sends his disciples, he said, go over and get that donkey over there. And um, they go over there and he says, well, what do we say to the guy? He says, the Lord has need of it. You know what? When people are moved by the joy and the happiness of God having done all this for us in Christ, and you say, the Lord has need of it, I have no doubt that the people of God respond with all their heart. Now, some don't. And so then you say, I want to let you know you're not going to heaven now. <laughs> no, we don't say that, do we? But we do want to say this. A good tree 
always bears good fruit. Right? Okay. Christians will produce works that are pleasing to God. Without a doubt, the Christian who is justified before God by faith will not lead in a moral life without regard for the law of God. Now, John uses an interesting phrase. He says, he talks about continuance in sin. This is a, think of, of, the, log, of the logic of this. If I say that we are not saved by our works, then so-called human logic would say then good works aren't necessary. If I say that a good faith always produces good works, will I follow that up with the idea that good works are things that are, how do we, how do we put it here? That if I don't sin, then maybe I'm a Christian. Can we ever say that? No, there's a difference between a Christian who sins. John says, I've written to you so that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have this wonderful advocate with Christ and the blood of Christ Jesus forgives us from all our sins. That continuance in sin is a different thing than sinning. Continuance means that we fight against conscience and we fight against God's law and we finally get to the point where we become blind to it. I had a guy in my congregation back in Connecticut who worked for the FBI and he and another guy were responsible for actually um, bugging the home of Paul Castellano who was the head of the mafia in New York. And he and this other guy got enough information so that they sent Paul Castellano and about a hundred of his uh, his mafia guys to jail. And he would talk about how these people had, they lived without any conscience whatsoever. For, for these people, they're raised from a very early age, but when they, when they, when they uh, went against the law and their conscience was no longer operative, they, could, they didn't care about whether or not they killed anybody. And they wouldn't care about whether or not they killed children. They didn't care whether or not it, it, everything had to do with, what, materialism or greed or whatever. But they had no conscience left. God has given us that conscience so that when we sin, we come to know it or we feel it or we sense it. And actually, the more sanctified that we get, the more sanctified that we get, the more conscious we are of our sinful natures and the more we appreciate God's grace. The Apostle Paul wasn't just lying when he said that he was a chief of sinners. He was a chief of sinners because he had such a deep understanding of the sinful nature. So, God gives you this gift of a conscience and when you fight against it and when you violate it and you do everything you can to just go right over the top of it, eventually you kill your conscience. And when you kill your conscience, forgiveness doesn't mean anything to you and you lose your salvation. Then faith gets lost. My, my dad was one of those people who, he was a pious layman. I love my dad. And um, my dad used to always say that he was, 
It distressed him greatly as a young child when he heard about the sin against the Holy Spirit. That the sin that where you can sin and, and all of a sudden God pulls off his Holy Spirit and never gives it back to you. He said, then his grandfather told him, if you're worried about it, it's okay. <laughs> it's when you don't worry about it that you've got problems. So the conscience is there to do this, and uh, what this they're saying, a Christian won't continue in sin as a Christian. They said, good works must be urged by every preacher of the gospel. This is a, the new thing today. It's very hard for us to try to translate that love of God for us into a definition of the love of God for others and to use it as a motivation. Because usually it's used as a motivation for guilt, right? How many of you uh, have experienced guilt in your life? <laughs> how, may, how, how many of you haven't? <laughs> That's the big question. <laughs> and, and, you know, everything, I just, I swear, Everything we're seeing on a daily basis and experiencing is telling us that there's something inadequate with us. That's marketing. Marketing has to make you feel as though there's something that you lack, right? And if you lack it, then you should feel guilty. And then, of course, anything that happens to anybody else, you're responsible for that too, including you have to be responsible also for everything that's happening in the White House. You're responsible for everything that happens in Congress. You're responsible for everything that happens in North Korea. You're responsible for everything, right? And the news just lays it out there. And if you were the dummy who didn't vote this way, or if you did the dummy who didn't vote that way, you're all responsible for... And my gosh, folks, we're living with this. And usually, 99.9% .9 of it is not real, real law. We should be paying attention more whether or not we're worrying about the slander. We should worry more about whether or not we're coveting. We should worry more about whether or not we're showing honor and respect to who we should show honor and respect to. We should worry about whether or not we're worshiping the right God and whether or not we have forgiveness and life and salvation. If you have that, that's the real weight. But this wonderful thing that washes away our guilt is that gift that we have in the blood of Christ. So, Every pastor has to find a way to preach true good works, not fake good works, not things that make you feel guilty over the wrong things. And straightforwardly, it is necessary for, doing, for Christians to do good works, should be, Christians ought to or should perform good works. Think about that. How would we do that? Well, backside. We have to remind ourselves we don't good, do good works because we're indebted to God. This isn't like God buys us and then we owe God. But good works are a willing response done out of a cheerful heart. A cheerful heart. How fortunate we are that John says that we are called children of God. That's what we are. And we're not right now, we're not looking like we're going to someday be. But think about what that means. We, we have within us the seed 
of divine immortality. You know, that, that changes our perspective of, of life, doesn't it? And what would you give? I mean, they're always, they're always they, they, have you ever seen these, t- you, you guys are too young, but uh, have you ever seen these shows where s- some guy has um, a blood that apparently will heal every, every uh, wound or disease, and there are all these people after this guy to get his blood so that they can take it and somehow use it to save somebody else's life, like some rich person who wants to live forever, and he's going after this guy who's got this blood. The world would just go after us if they knew that we had somehow had a medicine that would cure cancer. Yeah, they'd go after us, all right. But do they go after the one thing that will cure cancer? Do they pursue an understanding of God's grace and mercy and find it in the waters of baptism and in the blood of Christ? What's that stuff? There it is. The gift of immortality. The world doesn't recognize it. All right. Faith in number G enjoys doing good deeds. Even suffering for Christ is an opportunity for joy. Faith does not turn inward. And here's a real crucial factor. Faith doesn't turn inward but expresses itself outwardly in serving God and neighbor. It does before it is asked. Um... You know, if you were to think about this, kind of, a, I mean, moms, you know this. It isn't just moms, but everybody. But does a mother get up in the morning and say to herself, there's a poopy diaper. Let me do a good work. <laughs> Here is a screaming child who needs, who's throwing up and whose nose is running with snot. Let me do a good work. You know what? You love the kid, you don't even think about it. That's what faith does. Faith doesn't sit there and go, I have faith. I will do a good work. Faith looks to Christ and what he has done for us. And it doesn't even think twice about whether or not it's going to turn around and do that same thing somebody else. It just does it out of love for Christ. And you know what happens? Is that after you've been changing enough of those poopy diapers and after you've taken enough, enough of those kids that have been throwing up and all the things that go along with it, at the end of their lives, you look at them and you call them your greatest gift in life. We as Christians have the pleasure of being able to look at what it is that God has done to us and when we can turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile, when we can forgive and when we can love the unlovable, if we can do all those things, we get to be able to turn around and say, thank you, God, for working those things in me. Because it's the most fulfilling, rewarding thing in the whole world. Yeah. Well, faith doesn't turn around and look at itself. It just does. We're almost getting there. Got a lot of talking to do. (laughs) Number six, the reality of the old and the new man. We've talked a little bit about this. The Christian is never entirely free from sin. The old Adam remains and enjoys sin. He literally takes the freedom of the gospel as liberation from the law, an excuse for libertarianism, libertinism, libertinism. The Lutherans did not see good works as optional. 
The Christian through faith performs good works, but the unbeliever and the unregenerate part of the Christian performs evil works. This is, this is if this is confusing, just think about yourself and your life. How many times have you not wanted to be able to say, one part of you wants to go, I'd like to punch that guy right in the nose. Urgh! But I'd like to forgive that guy. I'd like to be able to just keep that for myself and not let anybody else have to have it. But I'd like to be able to share that with others. And if you have that duality in you, good for you. Because you're never going to escape this guy, this old Adam, and that new man is always going to be wrestling and fighting with that old Adam all the way to the grave. And they're going to be locked inside of themselves. And that's why Christians are always living kind of in this dual reality where we know that our sinful nature is rising up and wanting us to be able to do what's wrong. And our new man is saying, no, 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 for the sake of Christ, for the sake of goodness, let's try to be able to do the opposite. So, after I retire, if I punch somebody in the nose, you won't mind, will you? <laughs> there are a few. And now everybody's going, is it me? Is it me? <laughs> no. Um, understanding the difference between faith and works preserves a right understanding of both. Works offered to God in order to justify the sinner is going to rob God of his glory. Since God alone is the giver of all things, whether in the civic realm or the spiritual realm, man, realm, man can only be a receiver from God not a giver to God. Just remind people of this. Everybody who thinks that they're going, doing a good deed, let them be reminded that they would be dust if God had not given them life. They would be dead if God had not given them food, drink, house, home, land, animals, sun, moon, stars, everything that God gives to us. There isn't a single thing we can ever give back to Him. But, it does, however, turn us to others and enables us to be able to give through us from, from God through us to others. Uh, 7C, man may only be the giver in relationship to other men, only in relationship to another person. Whether the doer is a Christian or a non-Christian, may man do good works. And only when a work is done through faith does it become acceptable to God and become a good work in God's sight. So, uh, for those of you who may be living with the, I don't know if I have ever done enough. I, oh, I should be a better person. I should volunteer myself. I should be a person who feels this way, feels that way. I should be saying this. I should be sending cards. You know, by the way, I want to let you know that I always feel guilty about you. Not you, the ones who aren't here. Um, we had the pizza dinner I think we fed about 130, but when you count some of our youth, they count for three. <laughs> um, and everybody was eating pizza faster than we could produce it. It was just, it was, it was great, I think. 
and everybody everybody liked it. But you know, when you go home and you go, "Oh, wasn't that a great meal?" I'm sitting there thinking, "Who wasn't there? Who didn't come? Who's not supportive? What about those people? I could have been out making calls. There are people who aren't here in church Sunday morning. Whole place could be full, and I'd be going, "Who is not here?" I feel guilt every single day. Sylvia can testify that for all these years, I'd come home from preaching my sermon and I'd be depressed. Why am I depressed? You never do it good enough. You never hit the right people. You never are faithful enough to the text. You didn't put enough into it. Yeah. And then you have to back up and you have to be able to say, Honey, how was my sermon today? And for about 20 years, she said, I don't know, I couldn't hear anything. The kids were too loud. <laughs> really helped me a lot. <laughs> Last one, seven, eight, I mean, an additional question. May good works help to maintain faith? That's one of the questions that they tried to raise. Some thought, well, you know, it's kind of like um, keeping the ball running, you know, like turning on electricity, making sure the electricity is still going. Does, do the good works kind of keep that faith alive? And they said, evil works will destroy faith, but that does not mean that doing good works increases faith. When that thief died on that cross next to Jesus, he didn't need good works in order to be saved but when he saw the grace of God, he was the one that could turn and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That good work, which he did, came out of his faith. But he didn't need good works in order to feed his faith. Christians should be threatened and warned that persistence in evil can destroy faith. Uh, once saved, always saved is condemned. I don't know how many of you have ever run into that one, but when somebody says to you, you know, on July 15th, 1942, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I am saved. And you say, well, I, I'm sorry I put it that way because it kind of sounds a little bit like, the, like this is a teaching that comes from the South. <laughs> They, can, they have it up north, too. Um, but this idea that, that once you have kind of come to the faith, because this goes back to that Calvinistic doctrine of election, that supposedly I'm elected, and therefore if I have accepted Jesus as my Savior, it means that I now have a salvation that can't be taken from me. It's a very different promise that comes from God. God promises that He will never leave or forsake us. He doesn't tell us that our sinful nature is going to be so socked in and guaranteed that there's nothing that we can do, that we, there, there's nothing that, that, you know what I mean, don't you? I mean, that, that yes, we can destroy our faith through persistent unbelief. And that is a reality too. But God himself is always faithful. And then finally, finally, and finally, justification is begun, maintained, and ended by faith alone not by works. 
quote, Paul ascribes to faith not only our entry into grace, but also our present state of grace and our hope of sharing the glory of God. So if I want you to be able to die in the faith, I've got to preach to you the gospel every single chance that I have. But I'm going to retire. So you better hang on. And call somebody, along with Pastor Grady, who's going to preach that atoning blood of Christ, forgiveness of sins, the free gift of eternal life. So all the, I want you to hang on to that like it's your treasure. And don't worry. The good works are going to come. They'll follow. And it's okay to talk about what they are and what we should be doing. It's okay to rebuke the sinful nature when it gets out of, off, off the road here. But at the same time, it is only, 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 only that grace that comes from God, that justification that comes from Him, that pardon and forgiveness that comes from Him. That's the only thing that keeps us in the faith. Let, would you help me read the last paragraph? But here we must be extremely careful that works are not drawn into and mingled with the article of justification and salvation. Therefore, we correctly reject the proposition that good works are necessary for the believer's salvation or that it is impossible to be saved without good works. Such, such propositions are directly contrary to the doctrine of exclusive terms in the Articles of Justification and Salvation. Thank you all very much. Let's close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with His favor and give you His peace. Amen.